Welcome to the Shack 15 Conversations podcast, where we invite founders, innovators, and changemakers to share ideas with the community, speak to the experience of building their businesses, and unlock some of the hard-earned wisdom collected along the way. In this episode, we'll join our moderator, Monica Samko, head of West Coast Change and Transformation with management consultancy firm, BTS. Monica will lead us in conversation with the internationally acclaimed humanitarian photographer, Lisa Christine, whose arresting images blend photojournalism and fine art and have sparked widespread support in both the photographic and humanitarian worlds. Lisa's work documenting and raising awareness around modern slavery, human trafficking, ongoing refugee crises, and more has earned a Lucy Humanitarian Award and public endorsements by Pope Francis, the Dalai Lama, and the Queen Mother of Bhutan. Today, Lisa welcomes us for an audio tour of her gallery in Sonoma, California, to share the incredible stories behind a few of her favorite images captured over the course of her career. Enjoy. Lisa, let's kick off. Uh, Why don't you tell me a little bit about how did you get into the field of photography and Um, What was your first focus? Well, I believe that uh, photography started for me as a seed when I was a little kid because my mom had this bookshelf that contained enormous anthropology books and I used to open them up and look at these people so covered in mud and feathers that they sort of resembled the earth itself. And I think from my childlike perspective, I saw them as totally unshakable. Like they couldn't be thwarted in any way. And I remember walking out in the middle of the street and resolving that when I was old enough, I'd go find them and find out what it was that they had so I could incorporate it in my own life. And I, I look back thinking, yeah, that, that had an enormous impact on me, those images. Um, fast forward many years, I was given a camera by my aunt and uncle and I started making photographs black and white in my cousin's dark room, which was in the bathroom. And I was photographing friends and family and in a, in a sort of more serious way, I suppose. I was always interested, not in the, the cheesy grin and the group photos, but sort of a sense of someone's infinity. And when I look back on those photographs, I can see the thread in there of what it was that drew me initially to um, sort of want to uh, photograph and discover amongst people around the world. So when I was 18, I hit the road um, having saved my, my money and with a backpack and spending very little, I brought my camera. And that's kind of how my career started. So would you call that when you got in, would you call that initial step travel photography? And if that's the right realm, then where did you go from there? Well, I, I don't know if I call it travel photography. I think um, I was drawn to um, photographing humanity very specifically in order to sort of celebrate unity in the world. I was drawn especially to those cultures that were very ancient and I love to spend time with elders and and really see how people found meaning in whatever philosophy or religion. How is it that that people were provoked every day to move forward um, based on what meaning they saw in life and I, I think that was my main curiosity and that sort of opened up into this notion of celebrating unity because Gosh, I, I really believe it's in our differences. We are one. And now, especially given all the, the racial constraint in our own country, I, I keep thinking more than ever, just, just come in the gallery. We had a, a you know, protest recently and I was hell bent if it got a little violent to open my doors, even though I wasn't supposed to, to just get people in here to remember who we are, you know. Looking at the beautiful photographs behind you, I kind of just want to jump on a plane and um, go and visit these um, amazing yeah. cultures. How much time do you usually spend on a plane and traveling? This is the longest time during the COVID crisis that I've been on the ground in many, 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 many years and decades. My work actually has been made in more than 150 countries over the last 30 years. And I travel pretty often, but I'm also a mom, you know, so I have three kids, and I want to be a mom. I want to be present with them and um, learn from them too. So my trips are frequent when I'm able to go, but they're not as long as they used to be. I used to go for months, and now it's, it's usually like 10 days, two weeks, something like that. I just want to take a step back. If you describe, what, what is the 
the mission of the work and what is what is that ties together the first section of the images that you're going to be talking about? Absolutely. With that, I'll, I'll answer it in a small story. I was once um, photographing, um, not photographing, but rather exhibiting in Dallas, in Texas. And um, I, I had the images that are surrounding me, as well as one very specific of these Muslim women that were covered in their cloaks of galaba. And a woman, a Texan woman with big, wonderful Texan hair walked up to me and she said, what is your mission? And I said, why do you ask? And she, she commented that she was going around looking at all the images and she paused in front of this one of the Muslim women. And as she sat looking at these people, she, she started to feel her heart sort of open. And, and, and she realized, she said to me, I, I realized that I have prejudices. I realized that I have a, a bias against these people. And as she told me that she started to cry, and, and she said, yet when I look at them, all I feel is love. And I said, well, that's my mission. Oh, that's fantastic. I love that. So um, what, what is that? Can you tell us a little bit about the first section of the images we will be looking at? Sure. Um, first, uh, well, I call it the, the unity images. All my work is about dignity. But this work is really about celebrating all of us. And it's a body of work that just sort of takes us a little bit around the globe, some of images that are really important to me and that move me. Um, there are two beautiful images right behind you. Either of those belong to the Unity series? Yes, yes, both of them. Good. Um, so let's start with the first image then. Okay. This one is called Beneath the Branches. It was made in Namibia. Uh, I had to uh, charter a plane to get out to these people. So I was in this little tin can in the sky bouncing around with these high winds and um, I was dropped off in the middle of a desert between two craggy mountains and he was going to come get me like a week later. And so I went and I, I spent time with these particular people. Um, they're, they're so beautiful. They're called the Himba. And they're, they're, they sort of make me think of queens because they every day wake up and the first thing they do is they get ochre from their land and they mix it with butterfat and they swathe their body down in this brilliant red clay. And I think of it as their sense of like, I am, you know, it's, um, uh, they, lo they look like shiny rays of sun walking around during the day. And this girl uh, had recently hit puberty. And how we know that is that she's young and that her chain, her hair had recently changed the style of it. And prior, African cultures oftentimes have chapters that are signified or noticed by, by what they wear or how they, they do their hair. And in this case, she went from, uh, hair, which then was her natural black with plaits coming down the front of her face to this gorgeous long, um, almost like dreads that are covered in the, in the mud. But she's a young, beautiful, really innocent person that uh, just, just so lovely the way they live. Innocence, when I'm looking into her eyes, definitely innocence is what pops up for mm. me. How mm. much interaction do you have with your subjects when you photograph them? Well, when I work, I'm always with a translator, um, people that have a, a, a bit of an intimate connection most often with the people that I'm wanting to work with. And so when I'm with them, I initially sit down with the leaders of the village, sometimes the entire village, and I, and I talk to them and I express what my mission is and I get to learn all about them, which is much more exciting than my mission. And, um, and once I have permission, then I sort of work around people. What is the most fascinating culture you have experienced in your career? Well, Papua New Guinea is, is quite amazing. There is, I think it's about the largest amount of languages in the world, not dialects, but languages on one small island. And there's so many different tribes. And though they may be kilometers or just a few miles away from one another, they not only have a completely different language, but they dress completely differently and they paint themselves in a different manner. Okay. Yeah, it's fascinating to me. Do you want to go to the next image? Sure. Uh, this one is called Contemplation of Light. I made it a few years ago in Thailand. This is a, a monk sitting in a grotto cave where monks often go for quietude and meditation for great amounts of time. And I had been um, invited to work in there, um, not disturbing anyone's practice, but I'd gone in the day before just to watch the light because as you can see, there's an arc of light coming from above. And depending on the time of the day, that arc will um, meander to different uh, areas of the cave. 
And when it went down on him, I knew about the time and I was prepared for it, but I call it contemplation of light. And if you saw it up close, it's, it's just really moving and serene in his face is uh, so, so serene. It's a, it's a beautiful image. That's what that one's about. When I look at these images, uh, the ones especially that are at a very special place at a very special time, how much time do you actually have to spend waiting to photograph the perfect image, capture the perfect person with the perfect light? Uh, well, I liken it to fishing, uh, even though I'm a vegetarian and I don't fish because it's really the joy in being somewhere and you catch the fish, but sometimes it takes a long time. Um, when I work, I study the light ahead of time. I, I get to know kind of the flow of a place and the flow of people so that I can work when both the light is doing something that is um, compelling to me. And when people are happen to be in their sort of some sort of state that I find remarkable. And of course, that depends on the image, because sometimes it's just the person that is just amazing instantly. And that can be very fast. But if it's a setting like this in which I want to take on the take in the whole spirit and feeling of a place. Sometimes I take days. I have a beautiful image of um, the Great Wall of China. And I think I've hiked up to different areas of that wall six times. So you have to multiply that by the many hours or days each time that I would go there. And I, of all those trips, only got one image. How important is communication when entering an unfamiliar culture to capture photos? Is communication the key to trust? Communication is the key to trust, but on a more elevated level, it's really the communication of the heart, I believe. I use translators because it's utterly necessary to explain to people exactly what I'm doing so they have a full understanding and um, as much as possible, and I share with them images. But I feel like what really makes it rich is, is, is showing up entirely with another person so that they're willing, as I am, to be in their sort of authentic open space and when that happens and the shutter is open briefly that can be a really strong outcome of a, a photograph. And now we are on to this image from Ethiopia and this is one of my favorite images and this is right behind you as well. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes I can. This was made in Ethiopia just last year and it's called Duality. But I love it because it's sort of the human experience, isn't it? This sort of lightness and darkness in all of us, this yin and yang. And, um, and even during these COVID times, there's this really hard misfortune, but there's also these silver linings. And I think life is so much about that balance. We can't appreciate one without the other. This image, for me, it's just so compelling. In fact, at the moment, I have it in my own home. I'm really happy with the outcome. I met him, he's a Surrey member tribe, and I met him in the southern part of Ethiopia where um, they recently built a road. I, I'd been there in 1999 and it took me like weeks to get down there in a four by four having to change tires daily because the tires kept blowing out and uh, now they have a road so it's easier to uh, arrive to these people. And while they're still far, far away, and remote and difficult to get to, I, I fear that life will be changing for them because where you have roads, you have the ease of coming and going and these cultures will be deeply diluted uh, and you know, modernities always become introduced to communities very swiftly changing them. And I'm not saying that that's bad because everybody has a right to choose what they wish to have in their life, but it does change things. How intense a research process do you have to go through before you get on the ground in these different places? And how do you find your subjects for your photography? Well, I always research ahead of time, but I base my work on really what percolates in me, what I feel moved by and drawn to and what I feel excited about because always the best work is born from that. I was just talking to um, a friend about the most important thing you can have in life for me, which is curiosity. And I'm deeply curious about people and learning from them. I always say that these people aren't my subjects, they're my mentors, you know. So it's, I kind of go about uh, researching what I'm really drawn to. And then once I arrive somewhere, I have to do a little bit more research. I have to find the right translators and the right people that can bring me in because my work is uh, based entirely, as you mentioned, on trust and its fundamental um, pieces, intimacy. And if I'm not with a translator or guide that, that houses that in them, then I always I have to try to find someone else because that part is so important to the process. Thank you. Do you want to jump to the next um, photograph? 
Sure. Eternity. This was made in Myanmar on Inlay Lake. I really love this image. It, it um, is a journey, right? It's a journey image. And when I look at it, I think of a, it's like a metaphor for life in my eyes. I, I look at how, you know, we go forward in life, but as you can see, there's a fog in front of him and you can't even really see the horizon line. So it's all a mystery. And, you know, we don't know what lies ahead of us often, even now, especially, but we go forth anyway. We go forth with that trust and resolve um, that something awaits us. And I, I love that. You can see the ore. And if you were able to see it up close, you would see falling from it, these little droplets of water going into that lake. And it's very moving. Novice monks, novice are the young monks. They every day go out from the monastery and they walk. You can see here he's in a boat and he's going to a village and, and the monks will then disembark from their little canoes and they will walk off in barefoot from household to household um, with their begging bowls asking for alms or food. So people as lay people um, will put in money or rice or curry because you see monks of course can't touch money. So they're able to receive these items that then they bring back to the monastery and, and those items will then be cooked and prepared for all the monks. It's sort of this cool symbiotic relationship wherein people give food uh, so the, the monks can pray and in turn they get alms for having given. So it's, it's quite beautiful. I have some um, really deep and meaningful questions coming in, but before I go to that, this question I have been meaning to ask you for a long time. Where are you taking this shot? What are you standing and sitting in? Because I kind of see you standing in the middle of this um, lake, just yeah. uh, <laughs> watching. It does appear that way. You know, life is perception. So um, I'm actually on a dock. And in fact, my son Keon was with me when I was making that photograph. He set up my tripod. He was like, you know, three years old or something or, or sorry, sorry, five. Um, we, we were hanging out on this dock every morning. I would be there at 5 a.m. waiting for the monks. Again, back to the fishing, back to the patients, back to the allowing uh, things to unfold. So I was on a solid surface. If I had been in a boat, which I could have been, uh, it, it would be a little less sturdy and I'd have to use a higher, um, a higher uh, shutter speed in order to get that image without it being blurry. So I was trying to find a really hard surface and I was on sort of this broken up pier in order to do that. What is the most valuable message or lesson you could hope for your work to leave behind? Ah, that our world is divine, that we have so much beauty and so much to take care of, that we stop and pause and we really have a lot of gratitude and that we share that gratitude with others in need and, and um, you know, realize we're all in this thing called life with a capital L together. Mm -hmm. What is the first image or entire project you were ever truly proud of? Wow, that's a great question. My initial journey took me to so many places, uh, but when I think about the work that really moved me so many years ago, I think it must have been in India, uh, largely around the Ganges, where I felt very intimate as a young person with all the, 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 all the pieces of life. You know, the beautiful thing about India is that there's just these rich colors and smells and beauty everywhere and at the same time there's poverty and there's hardship and you know people um in so many western countries when they become ill or or they're disabled or they're dying or they're dead they are sort of hidden away and put away but in india everything's in front of you so there's this constant being face to face with what is good and bad back to duality and I, I found that really moving. And I think I felt in my life that that was the first time that I could be very intimate with that, that I had the opportunity to interact and engage with it. And in fact, it taught me so much about life and, and death so that later when my mom passed away, she was very young. She was 60. Um, the way that I dealt with her, her passing was entirely differently and much more intimately than it would have been if I hadn't had that experience. You know, when I think about our world and going out into it with absolute respect and treading lightly, I think that's the true university. You know, that's where there's so many gems because it's when being taught by the example of other people's living that we have the opportunity to really learn so much, you know? 
should we switch to the next image? Sounds good. Ooh, I love this one. Yeah, this is a, it's called These Tusks and it's in Thailand. The young man is a mahout, which basically means elephant trainer. That occupation um, comes down from generation to generation and is inherited by the young boys. So when a young uh, guy is about 10 years old, he's, he's put together with an elephant about the same age and they will spend their lives together. Um, they had a really cool relationship and I love this image because it's very reverential, but really what he's doing is he's pushing his elephant into the river for a bath at the end of the day. Um, but in the larger context, again, to me, it's back to that notion of what is possible. What, what unlikely relationships, friendships is possible when we have reverence and, and trust toward um, something that's different than ourselves. I, I really, yeah, I love this image. I love, he has a, I don't know if you can see it, but he has a serpent tattooed on his back and mm-hmm. um, the wet cloth in the water and that elephant with his beautiful eye and their nearness. It's, it's very special. I just love how much emotion you capture, but also even how the elephant's eye picks up his skin color. There is just so much synergy in this image. Yeah. It's yeah. absolutely beautiful. Thank you. I love uh, his little trunk coming up out of the water. <laughs> absolutely. Um, next image. This is also in Myanmar. It's at a, a monastery up near Inle Lake. I love this because it's very uh, meditative and it's very... Um, abundant and buoyant with light so if you were to see the print actually it's 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 quite mesmerizing and and that again is a place in which I spent a lot of time had permission to to work in the in the um, monastery and I waited some days until I figured out where I wanted to make a, a photograph you know this is made with a a large camera so you have to be take your time uh, making these images but it's it's, I love it. I just love this. It's called Through the Portal. And of course, in the uh, uh, doorways and windows have that propensity to inspire us with possibilities through the portal. How do you name your images? Well, mostly through something inspiring that I remember from that particular moment. But it's not always that I have an easy image. And sometimes I, I get very to the point and call something like arches or just very straightforward. But I like, I like words a lot. I like words and I like music and I like images. And um, so when I, when I have a moment to ponder, I, they, they add to an image, you know, they sort of set a tone. I noticed that a lot of your images have one person um, and the beautiful scenery or something very meaningful. Um, is that, is that by design? Do you like to photograph one single person? I know that you have some with several people in, but, but I just notice a theme across a lot of your images. Yeah, that's very true. Um, it's not purposeful, but I suppose, you know, it's what I'm drawn to. I'm sort of drawn to our journey as individuals in the world not that I don't adore and love people and not that I don't photograph groups, but there's something inspiring to me and, and sort of like we each have a journey and no matter what we do, it's our own internal journey. And I, I guess that's what my images convey because I feel that in, I feel that in my life and I feel that in everyone's life. And so no matter that I'm with my family and love my family and we're all together. It's like we're all together from the strength of our individual journeys. And I, I suppose it's born somewhere around, around that mm-hmm. idea. What are you drawn to when you see an option? Do you see color? Do you see a person? Mm. Do you see emotion at the setup? Yeah, I think it's all of that. And it's not, it's very instinctual. So I am drawn to what I'm drawn to. And I suppose it's all those things. It's the balance of color. In fact, I've realized in my photographs that a lot of it is um, um, chromatic. So it's just like one color, interestingly. As you can see, this one's very warm and kind of has this burnt umber, coppery gold feel. I I learn these things um, looking back on my work. Um, I don't set forth with ideas. I trust my instincts to be drawn to something. And then I look back and go, wow, okay, there's, I realize I often photograph one person, like you mentioned, and I realize that I'll often, uh, I love color. I I love brilliant color, but in these very kind of distinct ways, you know. Perfect. 
Let's switch to the next image. This is called Water Prayer, and it was made in the Amazon. This young man is a Shuar Indian, and I spent time with them. In fact, they're like my brothers. I, this was another uh, instance in which I had to get a small prop plane to drop me in the middle of the jungle and then come pick me up the you know, following week. So I met with the whole community here with, with my translator, and, and I asked them, well, how do you want to work? I would love to make your portraits and photograph your lives. What, what do you like? What would be meaningful to you? And they said, well, we want to bring you to our, our, our holy places. And I'm like, wow, that was amazing. Let's go. And so each day we'd kind of go to a different place. But uh, this beautiful young man brought me out to the, um, this gorgeous waterfall. And uh, he went out in the middle and he said, this is it. And it was just very moving. If you look closely, he has a, a disc on his chest that he's wearing. And that's anaconda. And um, what's remarkable, you know, they, they, have, they, they go out into the, to, to their jungle and they look for a rutum. And a rutum translates to like life force or life energy. So they'll find that in ayahuasca, for example, or anacondas or jaguars or waterfalls that are sacred or kapok trees, which are these very gorgeous ancient trees, um, to find their arutum, their force, their life force. Uh, what I love, though, um, you know, they're the true guardians of the forest. We should all have the, the indigenous people to these great forests in the Amazon be the guardians of it because they truly are. They look at every plant, every, every body of water, waterfall, leaf as a child to them. And so there's a really harmonious relationship that um, is, is enduring and, and, and wonderful. I mean, we were talking about stress and you know, they don't have stress. They don't even relate to the word because uh, some days they wake up and they say, okay, let's go hunting or another day, let's go play in the, in the river. You know, it's, they, they take what they need, not more. And they celebrate their lives in this very authentic day-to-day -day living. that's super beautiful. I, yeah. Thank you for asking. Or I'd like to share that image a lot. <laughs> Um, I actually want to switch to the um, next image because I want to make sure that we get to your slavery collection. So before we, we, we you start talking about these images, um, what made you decide to tackle the subject of slavery? I, because of the body of my work being so about dignity and unity, was asked to be the sole exhibitor at the um, Vancouver World Peace Summit with the Dalai Lama and his um, and a bunch of Nobel laureates. So while I was there, I was approached by a, a supporter of an organization called Free the Slaves. Um, her name was Bryn Friedman. And she walked up to me and she said, would you ever photograph slavery? And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, literally, this is over a decade ago. And though the, the word slavery is very common to us now, back then, though it wasn't so long ago, it really wasn't common. And I just, my head was spinning and I thought, what are you talking about? And she said, you know, whatever you're thinking right now, that's what I'm talking about. I think I was so taken aback. At that time, she had told me there was some 27 million people enslaved in the world. 27 million. I mean, I just couldn't, it staggered me. And so I remember like feeling two distinct things. One was shame. One was this huge disappointment in myself because my entire career is based on observing people, right? It's observing others. And yet I totally missed it. And the other was this panic that, oh my God, if I don't know about this, how many other people don't know about this? I mean, back then, um, NGOs that were fighting slavery couldn't even get funding because people didn't believe it existed. Well, anyway, I couldn't sleep for <laughs> a couple of weeks. I was really agitated and super uncomfortable. And I, and, and I, and I flew down to Los Angeles and I, I met with this lovely woman, Peggy Callahan, uh, the co-founder and director of Free the Slaves. And um, we started collaborating. And interestingly, she had been in this very gallery and was interested in me doing this whole project a couple of years before. But at that time, I can't remember if I was out of the country or what was going on. But that would lead me into a whole new journey of um, going to mostly places that I'd been for almost exclusively, but this time I'd sort of see the skeletons in the closet, you know? 
So that's how this uh, body of work, which has been ongoing, began. It's a, it's a huge, meaningful um, practice for me to constantly go out and to raise awareness uh, about what's occurring in the world. The number now is no longer 27 million. It is raising above 41 million. And while slavery is uh, illegal in virtually every country, it occurs in mostly every country, including our own, of course. And uh, I think uh, awareness on its own isn't going to do anything, but without awareness, we can't do anything at all. So I'm all about elevating this subject. I, it's a super passionate um, project for me. Can you tell us about the brothers on this image? Yeah, these are two kids, two brothers in the Himalayas, uh, in Nepal. And you can see they're carrying stone, but that stone each that they're carrying weighs, that weighs more than their own body weight. So they're holding hands because they have to actually traverse down this very perilous path uh, down the Himalayan mountains um, to trucks awaiting below that will collect that stone so that the boys then can climb up the mountain again and, and get more stone and carry it down. Now, when I look at these, this is slate that they're carrying. And I think, oh my gosh, is this the slate I have in my bathroom? Is this the slate I have in my kitchen or my garden? Um, because I think it's important that we all realize that we every day unknowingly and knowingly participate in slavery. And, uh, you know, we have the power to make a difference by what we buy and all that stuff. So once this image actually was, had come to light, I love this story. There was a young girl that had seen it. Um, her name was Vivian Har. And she was, uh, her, her parents were at my gallery and they purchased um, one of my books on slavery. And they brought it home to go through the book with their children. And the little girl, Vivian, was so touched by it. I mean, she did exactly what I hoped. And what she did was she recognized that that could be she and her brother in that same place. And that's what I think about slavery. Like it could easily be me or any of us really. It's a call of the draw where we're born and how vulnerable we are and, and making decisions or believing false promises. Um, so she did what every kid does, which is start a lemonade stand. And it didn't hurt that her father's a PR guy, but she ended up raising more than a million dollars to fight slavery based on a photograph. And that's what I'm really aiming at with, you know, having that sort of amplification where somebody sees something and they're moved by something because they feel this visceral connection with a person in an image. And they recognize that they're all our brothers and sisters around the world and want to raise up a hand to um, help. In any case, this particular slavery ring in this area of stone carrying was, it was, um, it was taken out, it, it, it stopped, and that was no small thing, and really, <laughs> really felt so good, you know. In a way, this is a progression from your Unity collection, where you help um, bring um, distinct cultures into our lives, to um, raising um, the issue of slavery to all of us. So um, I think now that you are in slavery, um, it's much more active. I think that through these images, they, they touch people and touch me um, to the core. So no wonder that people want to do more about it. So do you think, when was, so when you joined um, the slavery movement and when you started working in this field, is that when you kind of moved from a fine art photographer to an activist or was it, um, was it more of a progression? Oh, I think um, it was, I would call it a new chapter. Um, I, I did not just continue doing the work that I've always done, which, which actually fills me with the light that I need to go into the darkness with this stuff. But um, yeah, I think it was a place at which I, when I did this body of work, it was definitely a form of activism. It was definitely a, a, a form of largely volunteering to go do this work using my own funds because it mattered so much to me. Um, I, through my work on slavery, you know, I, I donate um, proceeds. So I've raised, you know, I think above $100,000 to fight slavery uh, by this point. And it's super meaningful to me, you know, so it's about getting the work out, having conversations, educating people. This all is um, something that we can actually uh, bend the arc toward justice on, but we need to know what we're dealing with. And I think seeing gets at us out of our heads with the statistics and into our hearts where, where the true passion and ability to make change comes from, along with all the facts. Talking about darkness, let's switch to the next image. This is Kofi. He's just the most beautiful kid. 
I met him in Ghana. Tens of thousands of children are enslaved in fishing villages on Lake Volta in Ghana, which is the largest man-made lake in the world. So these kids, this particular image is of a boy that had already been rescued and it was made at shelter. And the reason he's wet is because he was bathing. He was actually taking these huge buckets of water and pouring them over his head. Um, and I made this image, which when I look at him, I see every child in the world and he's become a real symbol of the anti-slavery movement. He's a signature piece for my um, exhibition on modern day slavery, which is called Bound to Freedom. Um, so all these kids are enslaved on this lake and um, they don't teach them how to swim. They love children because they have small nimble hands. They can mend nets and untether them and pull things out. But because it's a man-made lake, and you have to imagine that these kids are working like 16 hours a day, right? Um, since it's a man-made lake, there are skeletal tree limbs that rise up from beneath the surface. So when the fishermen toss the nets out into the lake, they get stuck on the, the limbs sometimes. And they literally like toss these kids in the water to untether them, but they often drown because they don't, they're not taught how to swim. So every kid I met knew of another kid that had drowned. And I just think, oh my gosh, you can imagine being a kid that thinks they're going to go to school somewhere and being taken care of from another family, but actually they end up being, you know, hasped away from their home and trafficked hundreds, of, if not thousands of miles and sold to strangers who enslaved them to do this work and make them work on a body of water that they don't know how to swim. It's just horrific. But, you know, the work of activists on the ground, people like Free the Slaves and others, in fact, Challenging Heights is who I was working with, the partner at the time in Lake Volta, um, you know, they, they were able through their activists to find Kofi's parents. And I got news about four or five months after I'd returned home that, that, that he was reunited with his parents. And what's even better is his parents were, were, were taught skills of how to recognize traffickers because people don't fall into slavery because they're stupid. They fall into it because they've been lied to. They've been given false promises of a education or a, a job and, and then they're totally exploited. Um, so this image in fact is called freedom and it's, it's a very, very popular image. And it just, I love it. I love this little boy so much. There's so much that um, he's telling us with his eyes. I just can't take mm. my eyes off of him. Um, I want to make sure that we get to um, some of your other images. And also there are a couple of questions I want to ask. So let's switch to the next image. Um, when I was in the field doing this body of work, I, I did two things. One is that I, I photographed people in their forced labor. And the other thing is um, that I would bring these bundles of candles. And when it was safe for them and safe for myself, I made really quick portraits of people that were enslaved and also some that were liberated, but um, holding candles. And I told him through the translator that other people would be seeing their images and that I would share their plight and, and ask people to do all they can to help. So this is called the Shine a Light series. I've done it um, throughout this whole body of work with people, as mentioned, that are currently still held in oppression and slavery, but also others that have been liberated in slavery, from slavery, and also people that stand for eradicating it. So a lot of Nobel laureates and people of leadership. Um, it's a campaign that's enduring and ongoing for me that um, I hope further shines a light on the, on the subject. What, um, what is the next project that you are working on around slavery or uh, in general? Well, I just finished a project um, actually documenting the Talitakum nuns. They are nuns that work under the Catholic Church that photograph in more, I said photograph, that, that fight slavery in more than 72 countries. So their whole focus is to help people who are being trafficked and they get right in there on the front lines. And I started this project flying all over to meet with them and spend days with them. And they were just amazing. I mean, they have like so little resource but they gave so much of their hearts and this total non-judgment and have helped so many people um, um, come out of slavery. In fact, mm -hmm. uh, if you're interested in them, you can go to a, a, a website called nunshealinghearts.org and make a small donation because they have no funding and they do so much. Um, well, it ended up that Pope Francis caught wind of 
our project that I did with the Galileo Foundation and the Talita Kum nuns, and he blessed the project, and then he launched it at the Vatican, where it later went on to the United Nations and became a national project in Japan. So it was, that's kind of the last project I've done. Uh, my next is really to probably get out to um, maybe Mongolia or Shingu Island in Brazil, but we'll see when the quarantine lifts uh, what is possible. Um, where and how can we support the mission represented by your work? Well, I have a, a, a foundation called A Human Thread. I think it perfectly uh, embodies the mission of my work because we are all in this together and I do a lot of work to um, elevate this subject and we are at humanthreadfoundation.org not a or the human thread just humanthreadfoundation.org and any support would be extremely meaningful um, this particular image was made in a brick kiln and actually when I went out to originally photograph uh, slavery the first subject that I was introduced to was the brick kilns. And it was just awe-inspiring. These people stacking bricks on their head up to 18 at a time. Each brick weighs like three, four pounds. They work 17, 18 hours a day, every day. They work without pause. They don't have breaks. Um, the temperatures exceeded 120 degrees on some days. And in fact, the abolitionists who were with me I always had them with me, bringing me in and out. And this whole body of work, which is quite extensive, you're getting a little appetizer, but it was all made in little pockets of like 10 minutes at a time because of the lack of safety. But those um, abolitionists that were my guardians there were, were fainting and passing out because of the severe heat. And um, my camera actually ceased working and became too hot to even touch. And I have to run back to the cruiser, have them turn on the ignition of the car and, you know, put up the air conditioner. And I'd pass the camera beneath the air conditioner to get it to cool enough to revive itself to being work to work. And I remember sitting in there thinking my camera, this innate object is getting more attention than these people ever will. It was just really heartbreaking. Um, yeah, so those are the brick kilns and they uh, happen in many countries, including India, Nepal, Bangladesh, uh, Pakistan, and many other places too. So how do you get access to these people? Because I assume whoever is hoarding these people enslaved are probably not very happy with you being around them. They don't put out the red carpet for me, that's for sure. Um, I work with the partners uh, around the world that are, that are active abolitionists and working as activists on the ground, mostly undercover, to help these people. So when they brought me in, they knew there would be no slaveholders there. The, the money traffickers were away. It would be, like, like I mentioned, in and out in these very small periods of time. And I mean, it was very, obviously there were dangerous moments and we would have to flee. And usually when I would be with the abolitionists, they would, I'd usually be with four or five and they would take to the corners of any premises we were on. And then someone would be right next to me, following me as I worked um, through because I get hyper-focused and I don't see anything except what's directly in front of me. And uh, when somebody would notice something, I would get a quick jerk and we would have to just you know, flee and take off from the area. So how do you reconcile um, taking on this extremely meaningful work that puts you in constant danger to being a mom of three? <laughs> well, you know, this is our world. This is my children's world. I want them to live in a thriving world where not just the privileged have access to basic needs and safety. And I want them to have a world in which um, they are safe. I think that's a driving force behind my work, actually, especially on modern day slavery. And my kids have been not, not documenting slavery, but they've been to the United Nations with me um, when I'm there and they know what their mom does. They are very aware of it. In fact, when I gave my TED Talks some years ago, my son would listen to me when I was rehearsing and he would stop me and say, okay, mom, just a second. You're, you're doing a good job. So, <laughs> and I, I, I remember him being a kid and, and he was playing with Legos and he would, he would pile these Legos on his head like they were bricks, you know? Um, 
so, you know, and they've traveled with me certainly to other more comfortable projects. Um, and I think it really widens their universe, so to speak. And I, I see them as deeply caring kids who have a view into the world in a kind of unique, diverse way that will, will set up a foundation for them to move forward with their own meaningful lives, however they choose to go, you know. So it gives me a lot of passion and, 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 um, and warmth. And I'm also extremely aware of, you know, my mortality and, and my presence with my children. And there are, um, for example, right now, if I were to travel, I would have to quarantine when I'm going out for two weeks. And then I'd have to quarantine on the return for two weeks. And I'm unwilling to, to not be with my kids for that length of time during their unique adolescent chapter, chapter you know. So I think it's all a balance, but I'm all for go for it moms, you know, like, <laughs> you know. There was a question about um, uh, if you have a desire to photograph different cultures of the U.S. Um, and I know that you do some work um, in the Americas. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's interesting because I have documented in over, uh, you know, 150 countries, but I really haven't done too much in my own backyard. In fact, the first project I had done was in Washington, D.C. at the foot of embassies, and it was uh, on sex trafficking. And I was uh, working undercover doing that, and it was really challenging and tragic. I think what I would love to do in the United States is do some stuff with the original, um, the original Americans, you know, the 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 wonderful indigenous people of our land that we stand on and to elevate them. So perhaps that can be something that I, I look into at, at some point. Could you just tell us a little bit about the image that we have right now? Yes, this image is called stratum because you can see the different levels on which people are working. We're, again, we're here in the brick kilns and um, it gives you an idea. You can see the, the part of the kiln ushering up on, on the left side and then the people gathering bricks below, kneeling down and stacking them on the heads. And the ones behind are kind of un, uh, pulling away the gravel of this huge kiln all around us. These, these bricks are baking. Um, but it really shows all the different types of labor and activity of this huge production of, of making bricks. And again, back to, you know, you, you, you may not even be wearing a shirt that's made by a... Um, a person that's enslaved in a factory, but that factory may be made of bricks that were made in brick kilns in which enslaved people were making them. So it's, it's really deep how it arrives in our supply chains on so many levels. Uh, do you have any advice for new photographers um, or new journalists searching for their own path in this realm of work? Would be yeah. What other skills have you mastered outside of the act of photography, which contributes to your ability to capture the magnificent images you do? Well, the, the best and most vital advice for people that want to photograph is to do it. Just photograph, photograph every day. And very soon after you photograph, sit down and look at what you've done develop your film, or if you're using digital, look at what you've done on a computer and immediately make notes on the notes you made when you were originally making the photograph. So to me, it's about practice and doing it. So you start to see technically how the, the interaction with the camera works. And once you have that down, you start gravitating toward things that you're really passionate about. And again, back to curiosity of life. If you're curious, go photograph what you're curious about and always do so with reverence and respect and always ask. Um, because I always say you don't take a photograph, you make a photograph. And it's a, it's a mutual experience in which um, people, if you're photographing people, come together. So um, uh, that's my advice to photographers, just photograph as much as possible. And now uh, we came for a circle and we are back to the US. Could you tell us about this final image? Yeah, this is another image that I made that was part of the, uh, the Nun Project. And uh, I was down in Los Angeles where some of the Talita Kum nuns work with really severe trafficked victims. And here you see the nun. I mean, I think it's so moving. She brought uh, this uh, young person to the beach and she washed her feet in this holy way. And the girl who had been trafficked by her own relative for so much of her very young life sat and wept at the reverence that was being, you know, given to her. And um, 
Oh, I just love this. This is Sister Kathleen that you see uh, kissing her feet. And uh, I think it's a great closing image because, you know, it's, there's many paths to the mountain of how we find meaning and whether it's religion or philosophy again, but you know what? It's all about love. And that's what this image conveys to me. Thank you, Lisa. This is beautiful. I could go for hours, but um, we, um, we are coming to the end of this conversation. So I'm curious, um, what ways can the audience be in contact with you? How, where they can find you and um, how they can follow your work? Yes, absolutely. So a few things. I have a website, which is simply my name.com, Lisa Christine with a K. Of course, I mentioned humanthreadfoundation.org. I can be reached uh, by email at lisa at lisachristine.com. And I have a gallery, very easy to find me on the plaza in Sonoma. You can't miss me. I'm right uh, by the Sebastiani Theater uh, in the middle of the street, First Street East. So I'd love to have anybody come up. You know, we're one of the few areas that are open and we're just loving people to come in with social distancing and masks. Perfect. Thank you so much for this. Um, and um, thank you, everybody, for um, the amazing questions and for sitting um, with us for this conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks, Monica, and everybody at Shack 15. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next Conversations podcast coming soon. If you have a story that needs to be shared, we'd love to hear from you. For more information on Shack 15 and our community, you can email info at shack15.com, connect with us on Instagram, or visit our website at shack15.com.